Man, I'm so glad you guys took some time out of your weekend to join us. Uh, We're at the end of October. We are two months away from the end of the year, which is pretty crazy to think about. Less than 100 days now. I think we're somewhere around like 70-something, 60-something days left uh, for you to tie up whatever resolutions you started. Which for some of you, this is the first time you remember the resolution you started in January and it's November. So I want to, you know, consider those things. We're in a series uh, that is called The Language of Praise. The Language of Praise. How many of you have ever wanted to say something yet you couldn't find the words to say it? Anybody ever been there? Like you wanted to articulate gratitude, you wanted to articulate thanksgiving, you wanted to articulate love, uh, but for various reasons you stuttered, stammered, or couldn't find the right dialect to articulate what you genuinely meant. Uh, One of the things I'm grateful for in our Bible is a book called the Book of Psalms. The Book of Psalms give us a dialect that covers all sorts of life experiences. There's one guy that's credited with writing around 71 of these psalms. His name is King David. Uh, He was someone that had a diverse language of praise. He danced before the Lord. He played the harp for the Lord. And the spirit of the Lord would move as he worshipped. He would sing to the Lord. He, He was a very imperfect person. Uh, But he's given the title, A Man After God's Own Heart, because in all seasons, even when he failed, he would get up and run towards the Lord, who, though he was righteous, also is gracious, and looks upon those who have fallen short, that's all of us, with mercy and steadfast love and grace. And so we want to, from these psalms, over these weeks that lead us into Thanksgiving, develop a better language of praise. Uh, That's my goal to you. I want to submit to you there's a lot of problems in your lives, a lot of circumstances and difficulties that you face, but perhaps one of the least prescribed remedies for a lot of the things we face is more praise. And I just want to submit to you that you've been created to worship God. You've been designed to fellowship with God. And when you do so, there is a unique work that God does in us when we turn our eyes upwards and off of the challenges and problems that allow these big challenges to become right-sized in view of the great God that's at work in our lives. Are you tracking with me? So last week, we were learning Hebrew. That's what we're doing. Hebrew is what the Old Testament was written in. The Hebrew word we studied last week for praise is a word called yadal. Y-A-D-A-H is how we would spell it in the English language. Yadal. It's uh, a word that means to lift your hands in thanksgiving and offerings of praise. So we lift our hands in thanksgiving and offering of praise. In order to lift our hands, you sometimes have to let go of what keeps your hands down. Which means, for some of you, you go through seasons of significant discouragement, uh, of uncertainty and doubts that cripple you and keep you from being exuberant or communicative towards God. So instead of running at God like King David would do, you've dropped your hands and dropped your head and become downtrodden and defined by a season of life instead of the God who is over all seasons of life. So instead of lifting our hands in thanksgiving, we keep our hands down in discouragement, our head bowed thinking that this must be it, no longer believing that we'll actually see the work and the goodness of God on this side of eternity, but assuming that this will be the plight of suffering and pain for the rest of our lives until God's return. Let me be very clear. In this life, you will have trouble. You will go through difficult seasons where praise will be more of a sacrifice than an ease of something to give. 
But the good news is the Psalms teach us that we bring a sacrifice of praise in those seasons. And we're willing to bring something and offer something to God that we can. Not because we're paying God back for anything. It's all grace. It's all mercy. But because we want to honor God even when it's hard to honor Him because of the difficulties we face in our life. So we, yadal, we bring thanksgiving. Psalm 100, Pastor Joe read it at the beginning of our service. It's a psalm of yadah, a psalm of praise and thanksgiving, and it says, enter his gates with praise. Before you ask God for anything, thank God for everything. Amen? Now I want to teach you a second word today that comes in Psalm 136. We're going to break Psalm 136 into two parts because I didn't think that I could cover or preach this entire text. Uh, And you get out of here in time for you not to hate or want to kill me. And and my goal is that uh, I not get martyred today. So uh, maybe I should be less caught instead of it and just go for it. But nonetheless, we're going to break it into two parts. You can find it in Psalm 136. If you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 136. And let me give you some background on the word and the text that we're going to look at. First, I'll talk about the word in Psalm 136. The word we're going to study for the next two weeks is a word called Hallel. Hallel. It's where we get the root word hallelujah from. Some of you like to say that word. Hallelujah. It's a good word. Let me give you the root of one part of it. Hallel means to acclaim and to boast of or to glory in. To acclaim to boast of and to glory in. We see a lot of Hillel practice when you're a kid and you have a larger-than-life father. Uh, some of you had the dad that you just thought was stronger than everybody and could beat everybody up. I got into this argument at school and actually got sent to the principal's office for fighting over whose dad could beat the other up. Right? So we were giving acclaim and boast in the strength and prowess and power of our earthly fathers, and that led us to get into a little bit of trouble. Well, the idea is that you and I are to live lives that frequent acclaim towards God, that frequently remind ourselves and those around us that the power and prowess and authority of God is great and worthy to be acknowledged and lived and responded to in light of its power. So the idea of what we're looking at is this call to hallelujah, to hallel, to acclaim and boast of God. Hallelujah is a two-part word. It takes this word that we're looking at, hallel, and it pairs it with a second word uh, where we get the word Yahweh or Yah. And so it's literally hallel Yah, which means hallelujah, which is what we do whenever we, in a moment of exuberant praise and in the acknowledgement of God's presence and the acknowledgement of God's work, are brought to this moment of euphoric wanting to express the goodness of God with a word that's unique to Him. Therefore, the word we're given in Scripture is Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It should be something on the tip of the tongue of the believer. See, the Psalms frequently use this term to call us to this kind of praise, and those psalms were used as mile marker moments where they were read, or holidays, festivals, and feasts where they were celebrated. We see the word Hallel in the Egyptian Hallel, which is a section of psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Uh, During the temple period, the Hallel was recited on 18 days of the year. During the Feast of Passover, this Egyptian Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118, was a section of psalms that were recited throughout the meal. Psalm 113 and 114 preceded the meal prior to drinking the second cup, and Psalm 115 to 118 were recited after the last cup was filled. Jesus is, uh, this, this is probably what Jesus and the disciples sang at their Passover when it says, and when they had finished singing, they were singing this Hallel. Now what was the Hallel about? 
It reflected on God's work throughout history to deliver God's people who were not a people out of the hand of Pharaoh and to give them a land as their own possession so that they could be blessed to be a blessing to the nations around them. But it looked forward to a future hope where a Savior would come and establish his throne forever. And on the night of that last Passover meal, the disciples sat in an upper room with the one that this song was always about sitting in the room with them. <laughs> I mean, you, even if you're Baptist, that gave you a little... <laughs> I mean, like, like, like that. Woo! Can you imagine? Hundreds of years, these songs were sung, awaiting the presence of the Savior and the Lord and the Messiah. And on that night... They sung them with him to his face. (laughs) There's going to come a day where we'll no longer sing with the presence of the Holy Spirit here, but our faith will be made sight, and the songs don't stop. (laughs) No, 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 no. (laughs) They, They crank them up to another level in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That's the song that we know they've been singing since the foundations of the earth, according to Isaiah chapter 6, as the seraphim encircled the throne of God. And we then join in with the hallelujah, with the cry of him being holy in his character and unchanging in his nature. And for eternity now, with this diverse, every tribe, nation, and tongue, we begin to join in in this praise and honor and worship and adoration to God. So we see this in the Egyptian Hallel, but today we're going to look at what's known as the Great Hallel. Let me move from the Word into this specific text, Psalm 136. That's what we're looking at. It's a psalm that has been used throughout major mile markers in uh, Jewish history and in Christian early church history. It's a psalm that is recited at the beginning of the morning prayers on Sabbaths and festivals within the Jewish calendar, as well as the cedar mill at Passover. It was recited when Solomon dedicated the temple. So a big moment, this psalm then is read as an acknowledgement of look at what God has done and look at what he's done in the past and look at what he continues to do in the present. So when Solomon's temple was there, it was also recited in early church history with an early church father known as Athanasius. He was in a big debate and battle over uh, the deity of Christ. And it's one of the most uh, early church battles we fought. There were creeds that were written over this. He was exiled, had been exiled three times. He ultimately was exiled five times for standing firm to the faith. Thank God for men of God like Athanasius that stood for the word of God whenever it wasn't being applauded by the crowd and the masses. And the Arians rose up because they wanted to make a statement that Jesus was the son of God, but he wasn't equal to God, which is a blasphemy. And so Athanasius, in defending it, had created a large... uh, group that hated him, despised him. And so on one night, I want you to get this through your mind, he had come out of exile and began to meet with several of the people in his church, and they were getting ready to take communion the next day. So they decided they were going to lock the church doors and pray all night to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Some of you go to Death Valley, or Willie Bryce, hours in advance to prepare for the game with little to no attention on being prepared to come before the presence of God. And let me be very clear. You can come just as you are. His grace is sufficient. His mercy is enough. It's new every single morning. But for a lot of us, we give time and attention and care and preparation into things that are wind and vapors. When we've been invited into this beautiful communion and relationship with Jesus, that's only going to increase. I mean, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to say physical training is good. I mean, it's good for your body to be physically trained, but it only goes so far. 
he then encourages the church, focus on these spiritual matters that will matter for eternity. And I would submit to you that perhaps a matter you're not preparing enough for is praising and worshiping God, building a dialect that adequately supplies you with weapons of praise in the midst of difficulties in your life. And that's my goal. I I want to absolutely uh, see God disassemble compartmentalized faith in this church. Like, I I want no part of a faith that raises its hands on Sunday and lowers its hands throughout the rest of the week, that acknowledges God with the mouth on Sunday and never even speaks his name to the neighbor that you're around that needs him on Monday throughout the week. Like, my goal is not that you would lift your hands in a service or sing louder here, but that you would sing loud out there, that you would praise God out there, that you would open your hand and surrender, not just here, but out there, and that in doing so, you would become everything the Bible says that you are in Christ Jesus, because I know that when God, through the Holy Spirit and His Word, seizes a people, we can see a move and a work of God that pushes back the darkness in a way that is beyond just a preacher preaching. Let me be clear. Preachers need to preach, and the Word of God needs to be proclaimed, but we are all a royal priesthood, and our lives need to preach, and it needs to be uh, brought to a point of such surrender that we look desperate for Jesus, that we live in this faith space where either God looks holy or we look foolish. And for a lot of us, we, we run from these places, but I just love the idea of getting to a point where if God doesn't come through, we're going to be ruined because that's how much we've banked it on God. Am I making sense? So they're, they're preparing to take communion. Athanasius and his community, after the rabbit trail I just went down, they're preparing to take community. And all these Aryan soldiers, it's believed around 5,000 of them showed up to try and kill Athanasius so that they could uh, stop having these arguments with him about the deity of Christ. And so they come, and as the doors are shaking, the historians write that Athanasius looked at the other members uh, that were serving in the service, and he said, the 136th Psalm. And the entire congregation, as the doors shook and ultimately were opened with soldiers that intended to kill, and they did kill many, the soldiers run into a room of an entire congregation reciting the mercies and love of God. In this great Hallel of praise. You see, praise is for good times. And it's absolutely for bad times. And you and I have been designed through praise to be reminded in what seems like it's going to be forever. Of the constant forever love of God that transcends any moment or circumstance that we go through in our lives. Are you tracking with me so far? Now, in it, there is a communal aspect to it. It's meant to be a call and response kind of psalm. So the priest or pastors or leaders would call out one line, and then the entire congregation will recite back the other line. And the other line is repetitious. It's his faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. No matter what you say, no matter where you're at, the point that the writer of Psalm 136 wants you to know is whether it's in creation or in history or in trouble and failure, God's faithful love endures forever. He's repetitious about it. Why? Because you and I are prone to forget it. We are prone to begin to think that his faithful love ceased now. Because of the loss of a loved one, because of the tragedy we're going through, because of the difficulty of circumstance and season that we are in. And the point of this psalm is to remind you that when it's broke down and not right, his faithful love endures forever. That when you've gone farther in sin than you thought you would go and done things that you can't imagine that you would ever do, his faithful love endures forever. That when the world feels like it's falling apart, there's a creator that stands over it and says, mine and his faithful love 
endures forever. Whenever you're oppressed and surrounded by an enemy that desires your demise, his faithful love will endure forever. Whenever evil empires rise up and try and suffocate and wipe you off of the earth, you need to be reminded of the fact that his faithful love endures forever. Whenever you're blessed with the promise that God promised that he would give you, you need to remember that it's not the promise that's worthy of the worship, but it's his faithful love that endures forever that's worthy of the worship. And so the psalm is meant to get you to a point to where you walk out of here going, what was that about? I don't know. We just said his faithful love endures forever repeatedly, and I think that's kind of the idea. And if that's where you end up at the end of this like rant, then the answer is, yes, you got it, because that's what I want. I want you weaponized looking at your tomorrow with his faithful love endures forever. And when your kids are pulling each other's hair, and they're calling each other names, and you begin to wonder, is that screw tape, or is that Jesus and the Holy Spirit working out their salvation, their fighting? His faithful love endures forever. And when you look at your spouse, and you begin to get a little frustrated because they're asleep at 7.30 and you need help, his faithful love endures forever. And when you look at the boss who drops a project on you last minute and you're frustrated and you begin to think, I'm going to give them my flesh, his faithful love, though, endures forever. That's the idea behind this text. Now, I want to read it instead of talk about it. And I want to make it communal instead of me reading it. So you've got a part and I've got a part, okay? I'm going to read a line. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have it in front of you. And then you're going to read a line. Now, we're going to do this 26 times. Okay? Now, I'm just going to be honest. Around 11 or 12, first service kind of petered out. Like They were like, you know, like they, 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 they weren't, but like, it, it, think about the truth of this statement. So, so just for practice, we'll practice line one and, and just make sure we're on page because you have a role, I have a role. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. All right, all right. We feel ready? All right, here we go. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Give thanks to him who alone does mighty miracles. Give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully. Give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully. Give thanks to him who placed the earth among the waters. Give thanks to him who made the heavenly lights. The sun to rule the day. And the moon and stars to rule the night. Give thanks to him who killed the firstborn of Egypt. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's that about? Well, we're not even going to talk about it today. That's next week. Okay. He, but there is, there is reason why we would praise in that moment. He brought Israel out of Egypt. He acted with a strong hand and a powerful arm. He gives thanks to him who parted the Red Sea. He led Israel safely through. But he hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. Give thanks to him who led his people through the wilderness. Give thanks to him who struck down the mighty kings. He killed powerful kings. Sion, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. God gave the land of these kings as an inheritance. A special possession to his servant Israel. He remembered us in our weakness. You're almost there. 
He saved us from our enemies. He gives food to every living thing. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven because... Come on. Oh, man. It's a good word. There's a lot in that. Let me give you a little bit of it. I'm going to go through four verses, and I want to give you a big construct, and then next week we're going to go after it hard into what it's broken down into. I like to break this text down into four parts. A lot of theologians break it down into two or three parts. I like to look at it into four parts. Verses one to four is the part that we're going to look at today. It speaks to the character and the uniqueness of God. Then we get into creation. That picks up in verse 5 to verse 9. And it talks about the way in which God created the entire earth. You do not want to miss the detail and how we're going to bring uh, astronomy, just to make sure you're hearing me, that's not astrology, astronomy into, into the service next week to look at how creation speaks to the skillfulness of its creator. Then it's going to look at the providence of God. That's what you're going to see in verses 10 almost to the very end where we look at how God has providentially told a story. He took a people that were not a people, that were forgotten, that cried out in their oppression. And he took a murderer named Moses that was hiding in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. And he walked him up on a burning bush, told him to take his shoes off because he was standing on holy ground. Spoke a life and a call into Moses' life that he never dreamed would be a possibility for him. He went to Pharaoh, told him to let his people go. Pharaoh said no. Plagues happened after many plagues and many signs and many wonders of God proving that he is the God of God and the Lord of Lords, which is said of in this text. They then go free after the firstborn is taken, but the Lord passed over. The angel of death passed over the households where the, the Lamb's blood was. All of this foreshadowing what Jesus would ultimately come to do as our Passover Lamb, who would now by his blood forgive us so that we would not get the just and due penalty of our sin, but instead would get the grace and the mercy of God, not just in a moment, but forever. Oh, it's good. It gets even better. Uh, from there, it then highlights and goes back to the current state of Israel at the very end where it says he's remembered us in our weakness. Why? Because his faithful love has endured forever. And he's saved us from our enemies. Why? Because his faithful love endures forever. And he uh, gives food to every living thing. Why? Because his faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Why? Because his faithful, just in case you're wondering what the sermon's about, his faithful love endures forever. Ever, forever. Now, there's a lot in here. Let me give you a few of the things that come from a big concept, big picture, just so we can lay the groundwork, and then we'll get through the first four verses. Number one, uh, this psalm is a line-by-line -line reminder of God's constant hesed, which is a Hebrew word of God's constant love. It's love that is merciful. It is unmerited. It is undeserved, meaning you never do anything to make God give it to you. That's the beauty of the word hesed. He just does it because it's who he is. You don't act lovingly. You don't go, man, I need God, but God still goes, I love you. I mean, that, that's what's amazing. And I love this about God. Is it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, he loves you and wants a relationship with you. Some of you right now are a drug addict. God wants a relationship with you. Some of you right now are an adulterer, and you're living openly in an adulterous relationship. God wants a relationship with you. Some of you right now have cussed out and generation after generation done everything you could do to wreck and ruin everything around you. God loves and wants a relationship with you. Some of you have been in a cycle of just chaos and there's everything falling apart around you and it's like you were born into trouble. God wants a relationship with you. Some of you have been overlooked and dismissed and marginalized. God wants a relationship with you. Why? 
because you are his hesed. He loves you in an unmerited, undeserving way that he offers out of his very nature and character. So this psalm is a line-by-line reminder of God's constant hesed. It explains to us the reason behind and the why, and the why behind everything that this psalm calls for in action. It explains to us the reason God does what he does. You know why? Because of his hesed. Because of his merciful love. Why does God do what he does? Love. Why does he send son? His son. Love. Why does he offer salvation to whosoever would believe? Love. Why has he not killed you though you walk in sin and have no desire to turn and trust him? Love. That's why. It goes on to then explain the need of all people. What's the need of every person? His hesed. His merciful love. It then goes on to explain the motivation behind all Christian service. Why do we serve? Because of his merciful love. Not to earn it, but because we've received it. And it's changed us. It, it's transformed us. How many of you, I know this may be a struggle, because for some of you, like, you still struggle with the idea that God could unconditionally love you. But how many of you have just been overwhelmed by the unconditional love of God to the point that you just couldn't contain it? You ever been there? Like, like just the... <laughs> It's, it's, it's not like that weird rap sheet of like, I've done things, I've been places, I had a hard life. Like, 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 like I, I'm just, it has nothing to do with me. That's the whole point. I'm just like loved. Like, and I, I, don't, I don't know in the experience of it, because I heard about it before I experienced, but I don't know in the experience of it how, how to describe it to you. <laughs> it's, 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 in some ways incomprehensible, yet by God's grace, somewhat knowable. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to explain it. What's the motivation behind service? Merciful love. What's the reason his people praise him? His merciful love. Why, why is there encouragement for all who desire to return to God? His merciful love. Why do, believer, why, why, why do believers repeatedly gather, pursue, worship, confess, pray, and sing? You know why? His merciful love. That's the idea. It's laying out for us. It's the motivation behind everything that we do that sometimes comes out as hallelujah and other times comes out in other ways. But either, either way, it's the great hallel. Now, Psalm 136, it goes in a call and response nature. In the first four verses, which we're going to look at now, give us statements on the character of God. So all praise is built on the foundation of God's immutability. God does not change. Therefore, we're not destroyed. Praise God. God is constant in his character. You and I can be described with character words, but we aren't constant in those character words. None of you are constantly patient. None of you. <laughs> there are a few spouses that were in this area over here that nudged. It was great. Um, <laughs> none of us are constantly patient. None of us are constantly merciful. None of us are all powerful. None of us are the Lord of lords. Yet these words are given to us to build a foundation for why we should raise the hallelujah. So, so what are the words that are given in these first four texts? We'll look at it. Give thanks to the Lord for he is, number one, constantly. How many of y'all grew up in like the early 90s praise movement where the preacher would get up and say, God is good and all the time. It's true. Cheesy, maybe, but true. Doesn't matter. It's, it's true. He is all the time good. He is good. Okay, all right. So let's establish that we praise God because of his hesed, his love. 
And part of that is his constant goodness. On top of that, it said, give thanks to the... All right, so we got big G, little g, big G, little g, God of gods. What's the idea here? Well, there's a lot of things that are powerful on earth. Some people have even declared themselves to be, in and of themselves, God. Other religions point to other powerful things and say, that is God. So what is this text saying? It's speaking to the exclusivity and the power and the position of our God above every other God. He is the God that allows these other smaller little g gods to exist for a period of time. Now, what are little g gods? Let's get into some theology. Let's discuss this. Like when you look at the bell priest and you look at other uh, gods of the Old Testament, like Molech and, and other gods that existed, there were attributed powerful works, and you can even find testaments outside of the Bible that attest to powerful things that happen under these little g gods' names. What are they? Well, I believe that we get a story that tells us about this world before we ever get here that we should pay attention to. In the book of Job, it says that before the foundations of the earth, there was a rebellion that was led by an angel named Satan. Angelic beings are more powerful than us. They're not fat babies that play harps on clouds. Uh, we're told they look quite wild. Like Some of you are like, I'd love to see an angel. No, you wouldn't. You would poo your pants. That's what would happen. Uh, Look at Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, it says that their wings are covered with eyes. With two wings, they cover their feet. With two wings, they cover their face. And with two wings, they fly. And their shouts and praise shake the foundations of the heavens. So, so th this is not like tests from Touched by an Angel in an Irish accent. If you were to see an angel, and it's, the, the Lord loves you. And then, you know, like, what was the other woman? Because she was the one I loved. The, uh, the, what, say it again. Della Reese, and then Della would come in, and she was just like, yeah. And you just knew with an Irish accent and a woman like that with soul saying, yeah, like God's there, it's good. You know, like not, not a real angel experience that's going on. A third of the angelic hosts were cast to the earth. They led a rebellion with Satan. I, I believe that what you see behind these other little g gods is a demonic masquerading of light. We were told that Satan likes to masquerade as a creature of light, that he likes to portray as though he is a worker of what God does, but all he is is a counterpuncher. God moves and he counters. God creates, he counters and takes what's created and tries to manipulate, edit, and make it into something that gives him glory instead of God getting glory. Instead of it giving us great praise, he wants it to give us great doubt. So then he counters it with something that questions or comes up against it. And then our limited understanding and perspective begins to make us hesitate instead of hallelujah. So, so we're told that there's a God of gods. Now, Many people will say that they believe that there is a God behind creation. They just don't believe that he's involved in creation. So there are some that would say God created and he's pretty much left this alone and that's why we can explain a good God and a bad world. Right? But the problem is, is the next line. The next line says, not only is he the God of gods because his love endures forever, but to give thanks to the... That's active reigning. Active reigning. It's to say, not only is he the power of powers, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, he is reigning as Lord and involved in it. The Psalms go so far in other texts to tell you how involved he is. He knit you together in your mother's He's numbered the hairs on your heads, according to the New Testament. There's not a sparrow that falls from the sky without his knowledge. So there's no such thing as like a slip-up where God didn't see it coming. 
He is absolutely God of gods, Lord of lords, and you need to remember when bad things happen that he's constantly working it because he is good for good. Huh. I mean, I don't know how you stayed silent this long with a God like that at work in a room like this amongst the people like you. He's good. He's God of gods. He's Lord of lords. He didn't create it and walk away from it, but he's created. And here's, and we're coming up on the season where we celebrate that he stepped into it. He created it and allowed his creation to murder him on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins. How, how do you allow that to happen? Well, you must be God of gods and Lord of lords. So then we get this fourth character, the one we'll land the plane on, that gives us, I think, a response. And it's because he's God of God, Lord of lords, and constantly good, <laughs> he alone does or works wonders, miracles. Let me look at it in the NLT. It says, give thanks to him who alone does mighty Miracles. So there's a big word I want you to pay attention to. It's right here. Alone. Uh, there's a worship leader that tried to describe this in a song called Indescribable. The idea is when it comes to the work of God in comparison to the works of men or the works of little g gods or little l lords in comparison to the big g God, the only God, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, when you compare the work, it is indescribable. How many of you, with your words, part water? Our God does. How many of you, with words, allow the people of Israel to go through on dry land and it doesn't fall until they all get through? Our Lord does. How many of you have ever fed an entire nation for 40 years with manna that falls from the sky? Our God does. How many of you have ever allowed an overpowered people to be empowered by the presence of God so that they could be used by God in a way that would give testimony and witness of the glory of God to all nations? This is what our God does. How many of you have been able to take on the entire world's sin on your shoulders and make payment for it? This is what our God does. How many of you without surgery but with words of open blind eyes? Our God does. How many of you without surgery have ever made a mute man speak? Our God by his words does. How many of you, by your word, have ever made a lame, man, a lame man walk? Our God does. So when it comes down to it, who are you going to compare him to? Who takes rebellious sinners and endures their running as prodigals, but never lets them lose the last name son, so that whenever they turn, they can always come home? <laughs> Our God does. Mm. So this is the beauty of this word. It's meant to armor you with a constant reminder of God's goodness, of God's power, of God's engagement, and of God's unique way of working wonders. He is ever doing great wonders. No one else does them. His wonders are great and not common and ordinary. And this is what I love. They deserve and demand our praise. So why do I sing when my world isn't fixed right the way that I want it to be fixed right? <laughs> because His mercy endures forever. His faithful love continues. What does praise look like in these moments? Well, it's praise from the heart, the lip, 
and the life. So here, here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to give you a chance to practice what we've preached. It's a weird concept in the American church. We're still trying to figure out, like, like most of the time, we're, it's like, do we just tell the pastor he did a good job, shake his hand and leave? No, no, no. Like you actually, in hearing of the Word of God by the Spirit of God, now go, God, what does this look like for me? So there's two Hebrew words that are giving you a dialect of praise, a language of praise. The first is yadal. That is, let's take whatever has kept our hands from being raised to God in gratitude and let's leave that down so that we can raise our hands up and remember that in spite of it not being good right now, God is good anyway. Let's remember that He is the God who cares about every detail of our life so we can come to Him with thanksgiving, not worry that He's disinformed or misinformed about what's happening in our life. So we can enter His gates with praise today. And we can raise from our lips and our lives and our hearts, what? A hallelujah. A hallelujah. That boast in, in spite of the current circumstances that would speak against, the power, the prowess, the ability, and the ongoing hand of God that is on those who are in Christ Jesus. So, our prayer team's here. If you need prayer, come and be prayed for. If you do not know who, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, we want to invite you in a relationship with Christ today. And the prayer team would love to pray with you a prayer from your heart declaring your need of Christ. Romans 3.23 says that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wage of sin is death, but Christ has come to give us life everlasting. Romans 9 says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, then he's faithful and just to forgive. It's been paid for. It's a gift that must be received, and he has offered it to you, so don't let your pride keep you in your seat. But if you do not have a relationship with him, stand. Leave your old life behind. Come down front and let us talk with you about what it means to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and allow him today to, take, to, to, to uh, bring his reign and his spirit into your life. For others, stand and lift your hands in worship because he is good and he is God and he is Lord and he alone works wonders. And as a result of it, let the praise of God transform your mind as you see him clearer as you walk back into the same world and problems that faced you before you came in here, but now filled with the Spirit of God, which gives you the spirit of an overcomer and what is ahead in the week to come. You stand, you move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen.